Pray with me, please. God, indeed, you are Lord of all. We ask our God that we might praise you in a way that will be pleasing to you. We might, that we might remember each day that as we lift you up, that you will be glorified, and in glorifying you, we will enjoy what you have given to us. For it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Deacon Karen is getting ready for next week already. And uh, she, that's, that's her, that's the passage that I think she's preaching next week. So come on Sunday night, and it'll be a great passage. That is not the passage that I'm preaching this week, however. So I'd like to take a look with you at the passage of scripture from Revelation chapter 19. Uh, the last time I was with you and had the opportunity to speak to you, one of the things that I emphasized was that the book of Revelation was given to us in order that we might see what kind of God we have and glorify our God in the things that happen and in the things that are taking place. As I mentioned to you last time, the, uh, the New Testament or the second reading uh, comes from the book of Revelation for all of this year's Easter uh, season. And the reason for that is because of the greatness of our God and the uh, resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's with that in mind that we look. If we would have looked a couple of weeks ago, we would have looked at a Revelation chapter 5. There the Lamb was slain and raised from the dead, and praise was given to him by all the people that were there, bowing down before him because he was worthy. I told the uh, students when I told when I did the um, when I did uh, New Testament at uh, CFCC that I promised them that I would tell them everything that they need to know about the Book of Revelation when we got to it. Now you have to understand it was a survey course, and we followed the the the, the, the books right on through, which meant that Revelation showed up on the last day and usually the last 30 minutes of class. So indeed, I did tell them all that they needed to know about the book of Revelation. It's found in Revelation chapter 5, and is that the lamb was slain and raised. Now, I'd, I think I'd modify that a little bit as we come over, because then in Revelation 7, it tells us that salvation, that the lamb brings salvation to the multitudes and worthy of praise and adoration. Then we basically come down to the passage that we have for today in Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19, this chapter opens up with the words, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. You know, we need to ask ourselves the question, why do we praise God? The, word, the, word, the Hebrew word, Hallelujah, simply means to praise, praise the Lord or praise God. Uh, and the interesting thing is that it uses the, the name of the, co the, the covenant name for God. He'd make promises. He would keep his promises. So when we praise God, when we say hallelujah, we're praising the covenant-making God, the one who has made promises that always keeps his promises. Now, as we begin to look at this, one of the things that we see is that over and over in the Psalms, we see hallelujah being used. Hallelujah, hallelujah, because of what God has done and what God will do for the people of Israel. Do you know how many times the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament? Four. It's used four times, and it's right in this chapter. 
the only four times that hallelujah is used in the New Testament is in this chapter. Okay? So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what makes this chapter look uh, say to us that you need to praise God? Well, when we come down, it's something that we're reminded of week in and week out. As we do the, as we do the Eucharist, uh, we begin to see there that it's right and a joyful thing to give him thanks, right? We come down through the Eucharist. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all of the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn. And we sing, then we say, hallelujah, our glory, uh, hallelujah, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth is full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then we go on before we distribute the communion, and the celebrant will say to you, Alleluia, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And your response is, therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. Okay? So before you and I participate in the communion, we are praising our God, are lifting ourselves up to God to praise him for the things that he's done, with the communion reminding us of what God has done for us. And in all honesty, it kind of brings us. David Gusick in his commentary says, I have, to, I have to say something here. You know how KISS usually stands for keep it short and stupid? My wife wants me to keep it slow, stupid, so that, so that you understand what I'm reading to you. Okay, so if I slow down when I'm reading, because I love my wife. Okay, so David Gusick, we get back to, sorry, rabbit hole. There you go. He goes on to quote a commentator who says, Anselm of Canterbury considers it an angelic word. Hallelujah, an angelic word. Do we not lift our praises before God with angels and archangels and with all of the host of heaven? And cannot be fully reduced in any language of man and concurs with Augustine that the feeling and saying of it embodies all the blessedness of heaven. Gusick goes on to say it, that one of the things that we need to, to, to remember is that we ought never to say it without thinking. We're a liturgical church. We're a liturgical church, and sometimes we say the same thing over and over and over again. And instead of thinking about what we're saying, we just say it. The, the liturgy was never meant to be that. The liturgy was always meant to lead us to a worship and adoration of our God. So that when we use the word Alleluia, we are thinking about who God is, what God is, what he has accomplished, and what he will accomplish. So we get excited after Lent when we're able to use the word Alleluia. And we shout it out. But do we shout it out with the idea of who and what our God is? Do we praise the Lord for who and what he is? and what he's done for us, and what he will do for us. Our text in 
uh, in Revelation chapter 19 is and needs to be taken in context. And when we, when we read 19, it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So when we put this text in context, we have to look and see what's happened just immediately before it. In chapter 7 through 18, what we find is that we find that the people of God are being persecuted by a, a, a great evil thing. Something is happening where the, the church of God is, 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 is being put to death and is being, uh, is, is being um, laid out as something that you don't want to follow. In those, in those chapters, we, we, we see that this type of tribulation uh, comes from, uh, from someone called Babylon, the great prostitute. And, and in it, there is death and deprivation with all of mankind being persecuted. Should they fail to pay reverence to Babylon, the prostitute? You know, in the Old Testament, Babylon was one of the great nations. It was, one, it was the nation that actually defeated the southern, the, the southern kingdom. And Babylon was known for its harshness and its, it, it, the way that it, it, it uh, put people to death and the way it decimated things. And that was true. And we see Babylon as it takes over Jerusalem, uh, the, 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 the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and it wreaks havoc on it. And then we come over in Daniel and we read about the great Babylon, don't we? We read about Nebuchadnezzar. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? Hey, there's nobody as good as I am. There's nobody as powerful as I am. Look what I, the great Nebuchadnezzar, have accomplished. Remember what happened right after that? Yeah, God struck him and he was out eating grass in the field. Okay? Then he recognized that maybe he wasn't as powerful as he thought he would be. Last week, Father Don talked to us about Antiochus Epiphanes. You remember Antiochus, don't you? He's the one that said, no more. You will not read the scriptures anymore. You will, you, you will not read the Old Testament. You will not worship the God of Israel anymore. You will follow along with the Greek philosophies and societies and there will be no more of this talking about Yahweh. And so what does he do? As Father Don reminded us, he goes into the very holy of holies that only the high priest is allowed to go into, and he, he sacrifices a pig on the altar. And then we have Judas Maccabeus coming along, and the defeat, uh, they defeat the, uh, the Greeks, the Antiochus. We come to the time in which we're in which this book is written, and as we looked at it, as we started it, we are reminded that Domitian is is the emperor during the time that John wrote this. Domitian is the one who put on the coins that he is Lord and 
God, to look to him. And there was, there was, there was, uh, there was persecution that took place during this time. So the people would have this all in the back of their mind. And down through the ages, that has happened, where Satan has used the powers of the world to, to, to mock and to, to martyr and to persecute his people. But this is different in the book of Revelation. This is not one state doing it. This is a whole worldwide thing taking place where Babylon, the great prostitute, says, you will follow me. Well, Babylon has a few, uh, few allies. Number one, she rides on the back of a dragon. Oh, my goodness. There's also the sport that comes from the beast that comes out of the, uh, out of the seas and the beast that comes out of the earth. We might know this as the satanic trinity, as they tried to take the place of very God. Is this not what Satan has done from the very beginning? To try to take the very place of God? You remember we read in the Old Testament, he says, I want to be high and lifted up. I want my throne above God's throne. I want to be worshipped. When we come and look at this, we see that this is a place where great persecution has taken place. But now we come to chapter 19, and we read that after this, after this persecution, after this persecution, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of great multitudes, the heavenly host, and the four elders, and the, uh, and the 20, or, I mean, sorry, the four beasts, and the 24 elders are bowing down and crying. Well, why is that? Well, because in chapter 18, we read that the great harlot has been thrown down and is no longer there to martyr and persecute God's people. So that the word hallelujah is lifted up in chapter 19 because God is the one who is in control of all things that happen. So my, my, my quest for us today is to understand that God is always worthy of hallelujah always worthy of hallelujah because he's the one who does and will do. You remember we talked about who is, who was, and who will be, or is, is to come. He's always there. So when we look at this and we say, why in the world do I say hallelujah? Well, my suggestion is a number of things that we might remember. He is worthy of praise, first of all, because the, he is a God of salvation, he's a God of glory, and he's a God of power. Look at and see what it says there. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. It's his very being. So when we look to salvation, salvation brings us to a, a place of deliverance, a rescue, a state of not being in grave dangers. What have, what have they just come out of? A state of grave danger, haven't they? And you and I will face grave dangers when Satan decides that he's going to try to persecute and to martyr God's people. Just as it has been down through the ages. But God is a God of salvation. I was just thinking, I, I have to admit, 
I thought about this between the services. We have, we, we do, we do our funeral. And we come to the place of commendation. And we say, you are immortal. We're talking to God. You are immortal, the creator of man, maker of mankind. And we are mortal. Formed of the earth and to the earth shall we return. For so did you ordain when you created me, saying, you are dust and to dust you shall return. All of us go down to dust, yet even at the grave we make our song. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Because in Christian burial, we know that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, back in the garden, back in the garden, the thing is that they had it. Satan came along, and what does he do with Adam and Eve? God had said to them, don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of the true fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Satan comes along and says to Eve, isn't that good looking fruit on that tree? It's great. Eve looks at it and says, not only is it good looking, but it looks like it tastes pretty good too. I think I'll take that. And, and Satan, had, Satan had guaranteed her if you eat, you will not surely die, but you will become like God. You will become like God. And instead, what happens, where, where at the time that, that Adam and Eve were with God, there was the aspect of shalom. There was a unity. There was a, there, there was a good feeling. There was a knowing that I have everything that I need. There was no... There was, there, there was nothing going on that, that talked about, uh, about me being um, at odds. There were no at odds. But when they ate, when they disobeyed God, shalom was vandalized. The vandalization of shalom. Sin is the vandalization of shalom. No longer peace. You know, they used to work in the garden. It was fine. But now you're going to work in the garden by the sweat of your brow. I'm going to have thorns and weeds come up. By the way, Eve, childbirth would have been probably not something that you would have thought of as pain. It will be now. There will be, there will be disagreements between Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, no longer will you walk with me in the cool of the night. We won't have the fellowship anymore. We will be separated. But God is a God of salvation. And that very day, he set up salvation by sacrifice for them. And by faith, they would lay themselves before God at his mercy and his grace. And we see that down through the Old Testament. But he's not just a God of salvation. He's a God of glory. I love that word, glory, doxa. Is a doxology. There we go. That's the word that we get. And when we talk about glory, it's probably what the definition, you know, when we think of glory, we think of the splendor, the brilliance from the, the base meaning of an awesome light. By the way, it used to be that the word awesome was only used of one being, God. Awesome is something that is done. 
that is miraculous. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But we see the glory of God. But in that glory of God is not just the light. In that glory of God is everything that there is about God. I think back to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His glory filled the temple. His glory filled the temple. Well, what was it? Well, what filled the temple? What made, what made Isaiah say, woe is me, I'm a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, he saw who God really was. He was God that was omnipotent. He was a God that was omnipresent. He was a God that was omniscient. He was a God of justice. He was a God of mercy. He was a God of love. He saw all of those things. And when he sees that, he sees, I'm undone before that God. And he lays himself out in prostration to him and says, I'm unworthy. And God lifts him up. And he says, I'm going to clean your lips. You're going to be my servant. That's what comes when we see the true glory of God in our lives. The third thing that we find out is that he is a God of power. Dunamis is the Greek word. Don't we love that word? Dunamis has the idea of of, of, of a power, of, of salvation, of, of a miracle, of one who rules. All those things are there. And I have to admit that when I hear that word, I go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first also the Greek. So we have a God of salvation. We have a God who is glorious with all of these things. And then in his power, through his word, you and I can once again have relationship with him and we can lift our hearts and our hands before our God and say, hallelujah. So when we're saying hallelujah, we're reminded that our God is a God of salvation. Our God is a God of glory. Our God is a God of power. And how do we know this? Well, he didn't finish there, and neither do I. Sorry. But we also say, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute. And we'll go on. So the, this God, this God is worthy of praise now shows us how it's done. He shows us that it's done in truth. The word has the idea of reliability, the idea of faithfulness. We have a God who is faithful. Sometimes when we go through difficult times, don't we, don't we sometimes say, where in the world are you? You promised that you would never leave me, you'd never forsake me. And as, uh, as, as we look, we, we, we see that God says, I've given you my word, that I am your God who will be with you no matter what happens. This is in contrast to the beast in 1716 who turns on the great harlot. God doesn't turn on his people. God loves his people. God expects us to be 
his people that are raising our hallelujahs because of his truth. And what is his truth? His truth is Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. But he's also a God of justice, and I think we need to understand that. A couple of weeks ago, I was accused of preaching hellfire and brimstone. Somebody said that this morning at 8 o'clock that the, the, the air conditioner hadn't come on yet, so it was warm. I thought, maybe we ought to leave it off. And we, you know, like Jonathan Edwards preaches his sermon, uh, Hands in the Sins of an Angry God at Night, the... the the lanterns are flickering, and here he does the picture of a spider hanging over the, uh, the flames and says, it's only because of God's grace that you haven't fallen into the flames. He read his sermon, by the way. He read his sermon, and he looks up, and people are on their knees before God, recognizing that God is the one who is the truth that brings salvation, his word. But he also is a God of justice, that if, indeed, we do not believe what he has to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish. The one who believes on the Son of God, the risen Lamb of God, is the one who is never going to perish. The one who turns away from that Lamb he says, you're, you're going to perish. And what he, what he basically says, is, as you look, for his judgments are true and just. God is always just in what he does. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, in 32, chapter 32, verses 34 through 36, sometimes we wonder, is God really just? I mean, Moses is singing, that's Mo, it's the song of Moses there. The people have been in the wilderness. There have been people who have said, we're not going to listen to this God. You all can't continue to live. And Moses reminds them that it is God who is the God who brings vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. God is a God of justice. A God to be feared, not only because he's an awesome God, because he's a God that keeps his word. Okay. So, we have his truth and justice. Well, how in the world is this demonstrated? Well, it's demonstrated when he says, for he has judged the great prostitute, the one who has, ha, has said there is no God other than me, the one that says that you need to follow me. He has judged that great prostitute, and this is what he says who corrupted the earth with her immorality. She sucked in the world with her immorality. And the world followed along. Oh, there's so many things. I know that you want me to talk about that back there. But Father Don would fire me if I took that much time. So I won't and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. You see what he's done? 
we look down here and he says, I'm a just God. You didn't want to walk with me. You didn't want to place your faith and trust in me. I am going to now, therefore, have to punish you. I gave you all the chances in all the world to come to me. You've heard the word that Jesus is the one who died to give life. And that by faith we take that. If we do not, there's judgment. You know how long the judgment lasts? How long does it say? Forever and ever. Forever and ever. But on the second part, there's another woman that's present in this passage. Do you remember the, the other woman that's present? The other woman that's present is a bride. Is a bride. And look what happens with this bride in verses 5 through 8. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Who's the bride? That's right, the church of Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. Those of us who are married are simply a symbol of what God has done with his church and Jesus Christ. He's brought them together. He's purified that church. He, 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 he gave it a righteousness that it could not have otherwise had. And he's called for the peoples of the world to come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That wedding will take place. The bride's dressed with a fine linen. It says the fine linen of righteousness. You see, you and I come as the bride of Christ by God's grace. By God's grace only. Ephesians chapter 2. But you know what happens when we become his bride? We want to please him. We want to love him. We want to worship him. And therefore, our acts should be acts of righteousness so that at the marriage feast of the Lamb, we're clothed with white linen, with the, righteous de with the deeds of the righteous. And my friends, that all begins in all honesty with a true view of who God really is so that we can say hallelujah to the God of gods. This marriage, by the way, this marriage of the Lamb, Father Don and I will say, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. This marriage is forever. This marriage is forever. Just like forever and ever there was punishment, forever and ever there's the bliss comes from our creator God who is worthy of adoration and praise. My friends, please, when you look at the book of Revelation, don't worry about what the bowels, uh, the bowls mean or the trumpets mean, although they're fun to talk about and we will somewhere along the line. But what I want you to remember is how great of a God you and I have. The only time all of the New Testament, that the word hallelujah 
Jesus. Revelation chapter 19 with angels and archangels and all of the company of heaven who forever sing this song. Holy, holy, holy. Will you join as we, as we go? These are the things that we're going to say as we go into the Eucharist as a reminder of God's love for us so that our, our song needs to be hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.